MSW Media. So, Renato, former prosecutor Mark Pomerantz claims in his latest book that there was more than enough evidence to charge Trump in New York. Does that mean that we should blame Alvin Bragg for not doing that? Uh, it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, Renato, um, I've been watching a lot of these interviews with former prosecutor Mark Pomerantz uh, about his new uh, his latest book. Um, and his big thing, the, what's getting a lot of press, is that he says that there was more than enough evidence to charge Trump um, for tax-related crimes. And uh, I think it was Alvin Bragg's refusal to move forward on that that caused him to leave that office. So I'm wondering what you think. I know you've always been skeptical of um, the ability to bring a case there for a number of reasons. So I'm wondering if you can unpack that and, and whether your opinion has changed in light of what Pomerantz has brought to light. So my, my opinion has not completely changed. I would say that my opinion of Mr. Pomerantz has gone down. I actually, uh, I Ooh. think, I mean, he he comes off to me like somebody who is an ax to grind here or is trying to make something of this. I mean, I have to say, I don't really think his book is very helpful to anyone but himself. Um, you know, there is still the potential to bring a case against Trump. Uh, the Manhattan DA has sort of opened a related uh, case or cases of hush, hush money payments. Um, and I just don't see anything good coming out of that book other than um, you know, uh, uh, you know, under I think some warranted criticism of the Manhattan DA's office. I think that book would have been more beneficial and more productive if it was brought some some time in the future. But I think bringing it now potentially could undermine the prosecution. And I think he comes off to me like somebody who is complaining about a supervisor's decision. You know, one thing I got to say when I was a federal prosecutor. I often, I was very aggressive and I wanted to bring lots of cases. And I had prosecutors telling me on a pretty regular basis, supervisors, that like, eh, you know, we got to be careful. We the reputation of the office and, you know, there's all this downside. And I often didn't agree with their judgment. Uh, sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. But I think um, going and writing a tell-all book complaining about it is poor form. And I think when you kind of read his statements closely and unpack them, it really seems like he concedes that there was a judgment call to be made here. And he more or less disagrees with their judgment call, which is his right to do. But I think it, it, at times he portrays it as something other than that. And I think, you know, his own words can kind of belie the fact that that's not exactly accurate. So then let's get to the substantive claim. Um, so you say it's a judgment call. So basically, 
what you're saying is that reasonable people can look at the evidence and could go either way in terms of um, saying, you know, interpreting it as being a relatively strong case or not being enough. What what does he say that's new? Like, in other words, what is his claim that this is a compelling enough case to bring forward? Now, I watched an interview with him this morning, and he was bolstering his idea that this is a strong case with language from a judge in the civil case that's being brought against Trump uh, by Letitia James on the the tax fraud issue and that the judge said, you know, this makes out a whatever, a prima facie case of fraud or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, I mean, is he right? Like, are, has new stuff come to light? Have, has, have new developments changed anything? Or what is it about the underlying evidence that you think is still mm-hmm. complicated? Yeah, no problem. So I'd say a few things. I mean, I think this whole situation is complicated. I mean, first of all, as he himself knows, um, using what happened in the civil case as um, an analog or to bolster his argument is of limited value because, first of all, the burden of proof is very different there. Uh, you have to yeah. prove, you know, you prove your case by 51%, essentially, just slightly more likely than not versus proving it beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal case. Secondly, Leticia James is the advantage of Donald Trump and other uh you know, representatives of the Trump organization having pled the fifth, not just once, but many, many times, and that being able to be used against them in the civil case. And so in the civil case, you can consider the fact that when asked all of these questions, was there a scheme to fraud and so forth, Trump took the fifth, which frankly was the smart thing to do in a broader sense, because there was a potential for a criminal case if he did open his mouth. But in the context of the civil case, it's just absolutely damning and buries him. So I think you know, I don't really think there's an analogy there. I mean, Pomerantz portrayed, you know, he had a very well-publicized resignation letter and mm-hmm. that was leaked to the press, presumably by him. And, you know, at the time, he made it sound like it was that there had been this grand decision to prosecute Trump that somehow didn't go forward for reasons that are unknown and was scuttled by the incoming DA, uh, Alvin Bragg. But, you know, from hearing his more um, expansive telling with this book, what it sounds more like was there were some meetings that Vance set up, the prior uh, you know, the prior mm-hmm. DA, that Bragg attended, that there was no clear consensus as to whether to charge or not. And there were a lot of concerns that were raised. You know, he, he kind of um, pisses all over a lot of the prosecutors in that office and says that the, he didn't think they were capable. And that may or may not be the case. I suspect like most prosecutors' offices, there are both good and not so good prosecutors in that office. I mean, certainly some of my friends that are former assistant DAs there would beg to differ with him. But I think that, you know, he what he expresses is that there was a a concern about, for example, scheme to defraud charges because there was no actual loss. So here, this is where there was overstatements to lenders and false statements to lenders, but the lenders mm-hmm. actually got all their money back. And so there was really no no fraud. And so they reconceived it as a, like a false statements in business records case, which is a crime in New York. I will note, it's not a crime federally, just merely to make a false statement in your own business records. Um, you know, and I think there was a lot of concern that was raised internally in that team as to 
whether or not that was the appropriate type of case to be bringing against a former, an unprecedented case against a former president, you know, merely making false statements. Because it's too small potatoes? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an element to which when you're looking, like, let's just say this person's name wasn't Donald Trump, it was John Doe. And you're, and, and there is a, you know, false, a, a, a claim, a case involving false statements in business records. I'm not, I'll just, again, put this out there. I'm not a New York lawyer and a, or a state prosecutor, but I, I've had a lot of prosecutorial experience. And if somebody came to me, I was supervising them and they're like, okay, we want to bring a case for false statements in business records. I'd be like, well, what is the context of the false statements and what were, in what context are they made? I mean, in other words, if they were, if they were made and nothing really came of them, it's not a very exciting case to bring. And it's, you, I think it raises the question of why public resources are being expended for false records in some companies' books that ultimately didn't result in anything. And so and when I you think, say it didn't result in anything, meaning it didn't result in a loss to the people to whom the misrepresentation was made. Correct. And exactly right. And I think that, you know, if... If what you're trying to say, if really the the like there was no harm, them, right? There's no harm, there's no injury. From them. Yeah, okay, correct. And I think also I would also look at how they were aimed. In other words, in a federal in federal fraud cases, unlike in New York State, you can have cr- uh, schemes to defraud that are not successful but are nonetheless criminal. In other words, I try to defraud you, you don't, but you know you don't fall for the trick. That's still a crime federally. It, uh, and under my understanding, as it's been explained to me by folks who are prosecutors in New York, is that under New York state law, you actually have to be successful in the scheme to defraud uh, under state law. And so without a loss, but, but nonetheless, even though federally, you know, I can bring an unsuccessful fraud claim and, and charge somebody with that, you always take into account, I think, what they were trying to accomplish. And so I think you know, I would. I guess my point is, you you would need to take a, a broader look at it. But on its face, just having false statements in your business records, uh, it's a sort of limited type of case. I think that you know, it's also fair to say that there were you know issues regarding potential proof there, which Pomerantz acknowledges. I mean, basically, what Pomerantz said, Pomerantz says is there were definitely some proof issues there. You know, it's a righteous case because we're all convinced that he did it. In other words, this is not like we we have doubts about guilt or innocence. That's often the case. I mean, I will just say in the white collar criminal defense world, you rarely it's rarely like, oh, I'm not sure if this guy was a fraudster. It's more like, do we have the evidence to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt? Because they're trying to prove what's inside this gentleman's head. And he's got, you know, very expensive lawyers are going to have a big fight. And I think that's a common uh, debate that that is had in prosecutors' offices across the country, and po- so Pomerantz is like, well, you should have more courage, and that's fine. Um, but the courage, when he says courage or something along those lines, he's basically saying you should take a case that you think very well you could lose on. And I think a lot of prosecutors would decide that they don't want to risk their office's reputation on a case that that they have a good chance of losing. Yeah. So. Speaking of that, unless there's unless you have more things to say, just I want to pivot light, slightly to the other rumor, I guess, that because you referenced it, that Alvin Bragg might be resuscitating the Stormy Daniels case. And it seems like everything you just yeah. said would apply to that, too, if not more so. 
Yeah, so I'm not like I will just say I'm not Alvin Bragg's biggest fan. You know, some people have been using this, and Andrew Weissman's a great example of somebody who I have a slight disagreement with. I actually he wrote a very um, insightful uh, book review mm-hmm. in which he makes some of the points that I've made. But I think you know maybe because he has a rela- he may have a relationship with Mr. Bragg that I don't have. I mean, he's using this to say, hey, let's re- take another look at Alvin Bragg. You know, he actually made a good decision. My view of Alvin Bragg was when I first heard about this decision, I'm, I was like, wow, good on Bragg. He actually made a very tough decision that I could t- I could see being one that hurts him politically because he, you know, he had to know that in Manhattan, everyone wanted him to indict Trump, but it may be the right thing. And he's putting, you know, what he thinks the right, the right decision is above his own electoral future. However, it soon became apparent when there's a lot of backlash, he did this very dishonest thing of trying to make it sound like the investigation was, quote, still ongoing. But it was a, it was very apparent, as many journalists reported on, that actually he was shutting everything down at the same time. And I think it, it seemed to me like he didn't realize how bad the backlash would be. And so he was trying to backtrack. And so what I see, because a long-winded way of getting to your question, which is, what I see is he's taking on an even weaker case because he now realizes he made a political mistake. Um, and so I just can't have much sympathy for him in this circumstance because I, obviously there are things I may not know. But based on, upon what I see publicly, what I see is somebody who made it what could have been a, a very courageous decision, but now is essentially realizing that it was bad for him politically and is, and is reversing the course effectively without doing so. So doubling down on the decision in the tax case, but then uh, resuscitating this other case to make it look like he's being tough on Trump in some way. Yeah, now what he could do is obscure things by saying, well, I always said we were continuing to look at it. We found this amazing case over here. We're taking on Trump. And you know what? If he does prosecute Trump, um, a lot of the folks who are critical of him won't care, right? They're going to be happy that he indicted Trump and, and so forth. Um, but I, and I, what's the state charge in this? I mean, we, what is the Stormy Daniels connection on the state? I, it's a potential campaign finance violation under federal law. Yep. And I, you know, back in the day when this was all, uh, in the news, I know you and I talked about how, um, we discussed it. And and I remember you saying that it was, not a strong case because the star witness was uh, Michael Cohen, who would be a tough witness to put on the stand because he had already pleaded guilty to lying to Congress, which then allows him to be impeached by the the defense. Um, how does this translate into state charges? So there are, once again, false statements and business records because there were payments to Cohen that said that those payments were for for legal services, when in fact they were reimbursing him for hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Now, as you could tell, that's like even weaker than the other case because you still have the same, it's the same sign of crime. But I think an argument could be made, first of all, that they were being, you know, I think just purely from a should we charge this perspective, I think a pitch could be made to prosecutors that this was these were not this was not done for a political purpose or for a financial purpose. It was actually done to hide an embarrassing situation from the public. Okay. And so that it's the sort of thing that, you know, while it was wrong, it probably is not the sort of thing you should, you know, make into a felony. 
Um, and by the way, Trump's own lawyers are trying to convince him to make that argument. At least that, I had talked to a reporter about that just this last week. I think that story did uh, did come out. Um, so you know that's one problem. And I think another problem is there is an argument to be made, although I think not a very good one, but nonetheless, it's an additional legal argument that Trump has that he was paying Cohen for legal services because, you know, there are times when lawyers in the context of legal services will pay certain expenses and then re- they will get reimbursed by their client. Now, But, but weren't, weren't the reimbursements structured in such a way that he got paid back, like, exactly the amount that... Mm-hmm. He had paid Stormy Daniels. True. I agree with that. But I think what I'm just trying to put the best spin on it from their defense case, the best defense case. And what I would say is, for example, there are a lot of times when I pay expenses on behalf of my clients. So I look, I practice law and represent all sorts of clients at a big law firm. And sometimes I pay expert witnesses. Sometimes I pay travel expenses. I pay all sorts of things. And then I bill it to my clients at the end of the month. And I bill them for all of these expenses for projectors or for equipment or for different things. And in their books and records, they probably say that they paid my law firm, you know, whatever amount of money, $100,000 for legal services. But in fact, they were paying, you know, whatever, right? The, uh, you know, all these other expenses. So... So I guess my question that kind of ties both of these together is where is the IRS? Like, why can't either of these instances be a case of just tax fraud generally because you're misrepresenting stuff on your tax returns and we have his tax returns. And I just have to say, like, you know, I'm putting together my tax stuff now and I'm sitting here trying to itemize my donations to Goodwill so that, you know, they're accurately valued. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, you know, you have someone who's playing fast and loose with millions of dollars in property valuations and mm-hmm. paying back legal fees, which are actually for, you know, a benefit to the campaign. And I think I, you know, feel like just as an average Joe citizen, I'm sitting here and I mean, I I don't think... I am at risk of getting like audited, but like I think about that and I, you know, if they came back and asked me about stuff, I would have, you know, a lot of careful records and stuff. But meanwhile, this person gets away with everything. Yeah, I know. That's where all the, everyone is listening is thinking that. I, I get this question all the time, right? I think that the reality is, though, not that many tax cases are charged. I mean, very, very, very minuscule percentage of taxpayers get criminally charged with anything. And a large part of that is because, first of all, you have to prove not only the individual tax taxpayer's knowledge and intent, but you actually have to prove what's called willfulness. You have to prove that they knew that they were violating the law when they signed the tax return. And we do that deliberately uh, in, the, in the tax laws because – you don't want people to have innocent mistakes over taxes, which are complicated, right? You don't want taxpayers yeah. to have to. So, so I just think, you know, the core defense here from Trump is going to be like, I have no idea what these checks are for, or I wasn't paying much attention to it. You know, I just signed these checks and I just signed these statements and whatever, because I'm a really rich guy and I got tons of people who make these decisions and tell me uh, flag things for me to sign and I sign them. And that's generally the defense in a case like this. And you know, I think of the Stormy Daniels one, one of the strengths of it is that I think he was paying attention to those payments in a way that he may not have been as focused on these these other points about valuation. I think it'd be easier for him to say, like, 
this wasn't at the top of his mind and he had functionaries who were making those decisions. But nonetheless, I mean, that would be part of the defense as well. Um, I will say that that would be an issue on the IRS side. I, you know, I don't know fully why the IRS hasn't pursued tax cases against Trump. I think of the valuation stuff, I think that that would be a um, difficult I feel case. like they would go after any person, even a business person, if they were falsifying property valuations. I think they would go after them civilly. I think whether okay. there'd be a criminal case, I think would be harder because they would have to prove that person's knowledge and so on. Well, and I mean, this goes back, I mean, I think with the willfulness piece, do you remember in 2018, the New York Times published a huge tax expose, and I think the statute of limitations had passed on that, but it was really about how mm -hmm. wealth had been passed down in the Trump family through these, you know, shell companies and a lot of this, you know, financial and legal sleight of hand and what looked to me like fraud. So in other words, we're not talking about one tax return here. I agree <laughs> We're with talking that. about a, a long history of you know, concealing and moving and, you know, falsifying stuff. True. I will just say, though, they couldn't get that in a trial because that would be a, what's called a prior bad act. So a trial, if you if I charge Asher and Gapa with, uh, you know, making false statements on her tax return on 2016 or in 2020 or 2020 or whatever, I can't bring in what you did 10 years earlier on another tax return because that's considered a total, it's like a totally separate uncharged crime that I'm using to basically say that, hey, Asha crimes all the time. So if she was criming in 2012, she must've been criming in 2022 as well. Yeah. And that's a frustrating aspect of, of criminal law from the prosecutorial perspective. Like I mm -hmm. remember in the Chauvin case, for example, like they weren't allowed to bring in all of his prior incidences of being disciplined, for example. Right. So you, and I mean, you know, I guess it depends on which vantage point, like you want, you know, due process requires that you punish and evaluate someone's guilt for the crime that they're being charged for. On the other hand, you know, it's frustrating from the outside to see a long pattern of behavior that seems quite relevant, but that would be excluded under our rules of evidence. I hear you. I mean, I think the prosecutors are very frustrated by that. I mean, that's the sort of thing that'd be high on the list of prosecutors to change. It works <laughs> It works against everybody. It's not just police officers, though. I mean, like, it, it works. All defendants benefit from that. I mean, there are plenty of trials where it's like, well, this, there's a drug deal at a McDonald's, and the person's like, hey, I was just there getting a hamburger. And it's like, you've been convicted 14 different times for <laughs> drug offenses. We all, you wouldn't just happen to be at the scene of a drug deal, man. But that, none of that comes in. And that is literally, yeah. I mean, those trials happen. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a kind of a central feature of our system. I, I will just say more broadly, I, I think one topic, we could probably have an entire podcast series on, you know, why people get away with certain types of crimes and why certain things, you know, aren't punished. And I think one thing it's fair to say with a lot of this stuff, financial crime, is there's a lot of things that are in different shades of gray where it may be that like, it sure looks like you said, looks like fraud, but like, would you be able to prove intent at the fraud? Like where it, companies can kind of get things into sort of a gray area where Sometimes maybe it's something you would you might find them for, but wouldn't be criminal. Or you know maybe you could find them, maybe not. And there's out there's 
acceptable levels of risk that certain you know entities, certain individuals are willing to take on, some more than others. Trump probably had a more extreme end. But nonetheless, I, I think it's fair to say that it's not as simple as people think where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, this looks like a crime. Well, they're, they're going to go to prison. And I think, you know, to the extent that's a frustrating uh, system and a system that people think is wrong, I think we need to have a broader discussion on how we can change the system rather than just being frustrated that it's not working in a particular way for a particular person. Fair enough. <laughs> Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeyal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-pro anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Khan and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. So I think way more attention was paid (laughs) to a balloon going over the United States than to this whole Pomerantz business or anything regarding Donald Trump's misdeeds this past week. What do you make of that, Asha? Yeah, that was... um... I have to say, I think I was more fascinated by the public out, out roaring and, um, you know, outcry, I guess. And the controversy over the balloon than really the balloon itself. Um, I mean, I, you know, I don't know much about spy balloons specifically. But it's not shocking to me that, you know, China would be engaged in any measure it can take to um, achieve a strategic advantage um, against the United States. Um, They are basically our number one counterintelligence threat. Uh, I think Christopher Wray has said that the FBI opens a counterintelligence case against China on the average of once every 12 hours. Um, and so that's how aggressive they are. So, you know, this balloon is floating around. Um, maybe it's, you know, it's was, I guess, happened to be floating over, you know, some nuclear missile silo. Um, but, you know, I was just surprised personally to hear these, uh, demands that Biden shoot it down because, you know, your first rule in counterintelligence is, if your adversary, if you catch your adversary doing something, you know, the first thing you want to do is get as much information about it as you can. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I just it just seems so dumb to me. Like, why would you shoot it down when, you know, you can get information about what it's doing mm-hmm. and, you know, what kind of, um, you know, what what they're up to, basically, which is, I think, really what happened in the end. Um what were your thoughts? Were you following this at all? I was. And like you, I was more the insane reaction. Like every random Republican politician is, you know, had photos of themselves oh pointing God. guns at the air that they were right. You know, J.D. Vance or Marjorie Taylor Greene or whomever. There's a lot of that. And I think a lot of, like you said, 
you know, this sort of instinct was like immediately like, let's shoot it down or let's take it down. I mean, like you, I, my initial thought was like, maybe we should figure out where it's communicating to and how and try to understand that so that we can understand better how China, you know, for example, maybe extracting information through a variety of means from the United States. Um, I think to me, one of the interesting things has been to see how the narrative, you know, changed over time based on events, right? Until, you know, until it got shot down, I was like, well, why didn't, you know, why didn't it get shot down? And people were explaining why you wouldn't. And then it did. And and then you had, you know, on one end of the spectrum, it's like dark branded, shot it down. And on the other end, it was like, well, took them too long to do it. And then there's this whole thing like Trump had balloons going over during his presidency. And then they came out that he wasn't told about them. Um, and so I, I, you know, it just, it, it, to me, it's actually a great, um, it, it's a window into the sort of era we're in where any sort of national security event is so highly politicized. You know, I wonder whether or not, I mean, we couldn't even come together over like being against, you know, a spy, you know, right. China trying to spy in the United States. I just wonder like if they, if they launched a missile and attacked us, will we be so busy blaming in one another that we couldn't come together to to respond to it. Well, and that, and I mean, that's such a great point because honestly, the divided response and the polarization is frankly more beneficial to China than allowing their balloon to float around for a few more days uh, because it reveals the vulnerability of the United States that can be exploited. And, you know, China is another player in the whole disinformation space. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not quite as good as Russia, but they, they, can also exploit these fissures. So when we advertise them, and particularly our leaders are advertising them, um, they really open the door for, you know, narratives that they know will will take hold. Um, the other thing that I think is so short sighted, and that some of these people ought to know better. Like, I mean, Mike Turner, like who is on the intelligence committee, was one of these people who who claimed that shooting it down was like tackling a football player after the game is over. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but that's just like a stupid analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he should know better. But, you know, we can't like look at the intelligence piece in isolation. Um, you know, there's diplomatic interests, there's military interests. I mean, I think uh, Secretary of State Blinken postponed a trip um, to China as a result of mm-hmm. this. So there's all these like second and third order effects, not to mention... We don't know what we might be up to that China might have an that might have a pulse on, and you know, we don't want them to retaliate and you know damage one of our satellites or something. You know, you just never know what the different cost benefit analysis is in terms of escalation. Um, and I, it's just disappointing that like those nuances were not discussed, and instead you just have JD Vance pointing an AR fifteen at the sky. Yeah, and I know. I mean, it was so dumb. It was really dumb because the you know those uh, bullet does not go sixty thousand feet into the sky. In fact, what it'll do is go much less than that, and then will come back down and hurt someone on the ground. So it's just really idiotic. But I think that you know what a lot of politicians on the right have figured out is that you know pandering to that base is what is necessary politically, and so I think for a lot of them. Even ones who don't always do that or don't always go in that direction, when there are opportunities to do it in a way that doesn't really harm them politically, they're always willing to sort of, you know, 
throw red meat that way. And I think that's just yeah. a feature of where politics is right now. And it's, I think, frustrating and sad. Yeah. And like you said, I think that it's really frustrating when it happens in the national security space. And we saw that happen when Brittany Griner was brought back. Yes. And there was a whole, you know, manufactured controversy that she was chosen to come back over um, uh Paul Whelan, is that right? Mm -hmm. The other person who's there, even though that wasn't an option on the table. And again, it the, the whole discussion got stupid instead of helpful. And I think ultimately weakens our position globally. Yeah. After hearing what you suggested, I wonder if one potential upside China saw towards this whole balloon incident, in other words, why they may have sent it here in the first place was precisely uh, some sort of PSYOP, uh, you know, goal where they're like, hey, let's show America that we're watching and maybe that will divide them or generate a reaction that's potentially beneficial. I I doubt that in hmm. in this case. I think um, my, my sense is that this has been highly embarrassing for China to have hmm. You know, because their 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 position is we're not conducting espionage. You know, they're they're in denial <laughs> weather, that they're doing this. Weather, uh, weather enthusiasts is out there. Exactly. So, <laughs> and and in, even in general, like with economic espionage, you know, to the extent that mm -hmm. um, administrations have have told China to to back off, they're like, well, we're not doing anything. So mm -hmm. I think to have this exposed um, is is embarrassing for China. In a way that I think Russia is a little bit different, right? Like Russia kind of li like they it's like a win win for them, right. like, you know, because they, you know, makes them seem like all powerful and they're, you know, screwing with our minds. I think China's a, a little bit different. And I think that this has been diplomatically and a PR um, embarrassment for them. Um, but I think that the response certainly gives them it gives them intelligence, exploitable mm -hmm. intelligence in terms of the psyche of the American populace that I think can certainly be weaponized against us. Without a doubt. So before we go, I don't know if you watch the Grammys, but Madonna's appearance is causing quite a stir. I missed the Grammys. I did too, but I there it was such an online fur. It was interesting to me to see, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. I mean, I will say it does not. She does not look like herself at all. She doesn't, but also like it's Madonna. I mean, <laughs> like she's she's like always transforming. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um, true. And I, she's 64 years old. I mean, frankly, I. I, I don't know. Like, it's not shocking to me. Like, if, if it was a more traditional artist, I guess, <laughs> uh, and sure. like they came out and looked completely different. But, you know, I put her in the same category as sort of Michael Jackson, you know, who's co who was constantly trans. Was I mean, it, who's well, who wasn't that shocking too? Well, what he, do you like? He, his nose fell was, he fell was off but I mean, you know, his ability, yeah. And I don't know if she's just doing work all the time like he was, but. On, on her, you know, face, but um, part of their brand is this idea of 
transformation and shock and to constantly reinvent. And that's, yeah. and, and fair, that's how she's, point. I mean, we were listening to her in middle school. Right? <laughs> and she's still relevant. Crazy we're almost the same age, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. What do you, th- I mean, I'm looking at the photo and I'm like, okay, yeah, it's Madonna. Well, let's take a, I want to take a step back. I mean, my, I guess my uh-huh. reaction to it was, that it's kind of I do think there's a there's pressure on women that there is not on men to like as, as you're getting older that you can't it, 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 how you look is not acceptable yeah. and it's somehow unacceptable to be 64 years old and be a woman and it's sad and I I think that's sort of when I saw it I thought it was kind of sad I mean I felt the same way I feel the same way it's sometimes like Renee Zellweger or Cher or others who have so much work done um, and Michael Jackson, I guess, falls in the side. I felt bad for Michael Jackson because I did feel like there was an element, you know, Mitch, in which he thought the way he looked uh, was not um, acceptable or favored. I don't know. I, I just think it's kind of sad in, its, in a way. And I kind of feel bad for her. That's my reaction to it. So you think that she's doing this because of a fear of aging? Yeah. I mean, Madonna, somebody, I don't know her, but my sense of things is like, how she looked in her image was always oh, part yeah. of who she is. I mean, she's somebody who's mm-hmm. had an iconic image, had books made of photos of her. And also, I mean, she's somebody whose looks in her image was such a big deal. And it may be hard for that to go. And, and I think that it may be, you know, creating an issue with her identity. I'm not a psychiatrist, but it just, I don't know, made me feel bad for her. Yeah, well, I mean, women's, sex appeal is associated with their youth and their weight and all of these things in a way that don't sustain through the aging process. Whereas men's sex appeal is apparent, is allowed to adapt over time, right? I mean, Harrison Ford is, you know, how old is he now? I don't even know. I mean, he looks really old, <laughs> but he's still, you know, I think, you know, has the sex appeal. Um, and I think you could say the same, I don't know, off the top of my head, I can't think of. Well, Sean um, Connery was when he was older. Like people were like, right? or, or George Clooney. I mean, he's, you know, um, somebody who still looks great. Right. And so I do think there's this element of men, if men have gray hair or beard, you know, gray beards or whatever that they're in, in wrinkles, that they're still sexy and rugged, but there isn't that same look for, for women. I just think that that may have something to do with this. That was where my mind went initially. It was like, wow. Cause it's like a lot done uh, by her. And so it's yeah. just sort of. Wasn't there something else about the Grammys? The, the one thing I didn't see anything on social media about Madonna, but I saw like in the right wing eco sphere, yeah. some video that they were accusing of being like, like satanic yeah satanic what was that i don't know it's like a performance it's like a performance that had satanic imagery which can be like edgy but you know i will say somebody who was raised in an evangelical christian household like there's this out there's a a lot of folks believe that like there's you know how a lot of people on the evangelical right will be like hollywood is satanic and they're you know trying to take over your kids and turn them into satanic whatever and this is there's the proof you saw it in front of you they used you know yeah. satanic when it was just i think of the folks in hollywood thought they were making a bold artistic choice a uh, little did they know right. they were feeding into a right-wing narrative so do you remember when we were younger the um 
the right wing theory that certain records, if you played them backwards, um, had like whatever satanic messages. Do stuff. I remember? Are you kidding? Those guys, those some of those people spoke in my church when I was a kid. I was not allowed to listen to what they called secular music when I was a kid because Stop of the, it. Their, yeah, I had like this crazy childhood where I couldn't watch the same TV shows or listen to the same music as everyone else. And so there was definitely, yeah, I mean, that was like, my parents believed that stuff. Like it was going to poison my mind, turn me into, uh, turn me satanic. Just so. to bring this full circle, were you allowed to watch Madonna's Like a Prayer video when it debuted? <sighs> so for people who are listening who are below a certain age, there used to be this channel called MTV and big artists like Madonna and Michael Jackson would basically like have these videos that would have like a world premiere. Like everyone would be waiting mm-hmm. for the release and sometimes even commercials like the Pepsi commercials. Mm-hmm. Like you'd like the world premiere of the Michael Jackson Pe- Pepsi wow. commercial. But the Like a Prayer video, I remember like waiting Same. for 8 p.m. for to, to watch this video that was going to be so crazy and controversial and you know invoke religious themes and i think the evangelicals were very upset about this even before they they saw it and were you allowed to watch it hell no i i i couldn't watch mtv at all um i watched that at a friend's house though i watched like the like a prayer i still remember it i could probably recite most of the words of the song yeah it's just like that was were you shocked yeah, I mean, I, I was starting to get in an age, like right around that time I was in junior high, I was like, mm, I don't know if I believe all this stuff. Um, so I was sort of like, you know, whatever. I I feel like most like 13-year-olds, 12, 13-year-olds are like in the mindset of rebelling against their parents. Yeah. or Yeah. So that was yeah. where I was at. I was like, mm, I'm going to sneak off and watch. And Madonna was hot. Hell yeah. I can say it. As an Italian guy particularly, I can say that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, she caused a stir in the Indian community when I was in college because she did some tour and one of her songs involved her wearing a sari. Oh, and yeah. And then she, she like ripped the sari off and then she was like, you know, I don't know, in lingerie or something. Um, <laughs> and so this was this was like scandalous and, and kind of like, was it, mis- was it misappropriation and all this kind of stuff. Oh my so, God. I think it's yeah. kind of cool, right? And yeah. Like a lot of people would then start like trying to figure I out. Know, I thought it was cool. I was like, she's wearing a sorry. Like, I mean, she's making sorry's cool. You know, my parent, my friends, yeah. you know, my friends, but like people in my school used to make fun of my mom for wearing a sorry to school when I was in like elementary school. And now Madonna's on stage. I thought it, I was not offended by it. Cause again, it's Madonna. <laughs> the rules don't apply to her. The rules like don't, they apply don't apply to, they don't, they to don't Trump. Apply to Donald Trump either. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> MSW Media. no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. 
So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth.